Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial coverage for Shingrix, Zoster Vaccine Recombinant Adjuvanted, by visiting coverageshingrix.com. Hello and welcome to the March 21st, 2023 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. For those of you listening in the Northern Hemisphere, where I am as I record this, happy spring. Spring officially began yesterday, on March 20th. I'm Dr. Christine Lane, Annals Editor-in-Chief, and I'm here to share some brief highlights about the most recent new articles and multimedia features that you will find if you go to annals.org. The first article I want to highlight is a commentary on health misinformation that I wrote with Dr. Hussein Lalani. Who people trust when seeking health-related information depends on many factors, including life experience, education, and personal values. The average American spends two and a half hours daily on social media, making it a powerful vehicle for spreading information, even beyond the social media users themselves. To help limit the harms of health-related misinformation and disinformation that pollute social media, YouTube supported the development of a framework to identify credible sources of health information. With this support, the National Academy of Medicine convened a multidisciplinary panel in 2021 to identify principles and attributes of credible sources of health information, focusing on U.S.-based accredited nonprofit organizations and governmental entities. In 2022, the Council of Medical Specialty Societies, the National Academy of Medicine, and the World Health Organization charged another panel to adapt the principles and attributes identified in 2021 for application to individuals, for-profit entities, and non-accredited nonprofit organizations. I was a member of that second panel. These efforts identified four foundational principles and associated attributes of credible health information sources. These principles were that credible information is science-based, objective, transparent and accountable, and inclusive and equitable. YouTube aims to use these criteria to identify credible sources to elevate in searches on its platform and to provide a framework that other social media companies could use. Dr. Lolani and I discuss our thoughts on the feasibility of implementing these credibility criteria and express our concerns about whether credibility tags on social media posts will meaningfully limit the spread of health-related misinformation. Given the credibility conundrum, what one person considers credible, another may not. Go to annals.org to read the full commentary. Next is a systematic review of 33 randomized control trials that found that yoga improved gait speed and lower extremity strength in inactive older persons. However, yoga did not seem to offer a benefit for frailty markers over activities like exercise or tai chi. Older adults have increased burden of chronic illness, disability, and frailty. Frailty affects up to 50% of adults aged 80 years and older, and as prevention and management are a high priority. Yoga may be a prevention and management strategy and is already used to improve balance and mobility in older adults. Researchers from Brigham and Women's Hospital and Harvard Medical School reviewed 33 randomized controlled trials, including 2,384 participants aged 65 years or older, to evaluate the available trial evidence on the effect of yoga-based interventions on frailty in older adults. The authors analyzed impacts on frailty markers, including measures of gait speed, hand grip strength, balance, lower extremity strength and endurance, and multi-component physical performance measures. The authors found that when compared to education-only or inactive control groups, there was moderate evidence that yoga improved gait speed and lower body strength and endurance. 
the benefits for balance and hand grip strength were less certain. While there was no clear advantage for a particular style of yoga, the author suggests clinicians may consider recommending home-based practice customized for older populations. These findings add to growing literature that yoga plays a role in healthy aging and frailty prevention. Go to annals.org for the full article and for a brief video summarizing it. The U.S.'s horrible maternal morbidity and mortality rates are a topic of much discussion. Next is a study of women hospitalized for childbirth that found that cardiac arrest occurred in about 1 in 9,000 deliveries, a rate that is higher than previously reported estimates. Cardiac arrest was more common among patients who were older, were non-Hispanic black, were insured through Medicare or Medicaid, or had underlying medical conditions. Cardiac arrest is an uncommon, but obviously serious, maternal complication. Estimates of severe maternal complications occurring during delivery hospitalization can provide information for evidence-based strategies to reduce pregnancy-related death. Researchers from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention studied data from the Healthcare Cost and Utilization Project National Inpatient Sample from 2017 to 2019 to investigate the rate of cardiac arrest during hospitalizations for childbirth. The authors also looked at the patient characteristics associated with cardiac arrest and survival rates. Among the 10,921,784 U.S. delivery hospitalizations included in the database, the cardiac arrest rate was 13.4 per 100,000, and about a third of those patients survived to hospital discharge. Survival was lowest with co-occurring disseminated intravascular coagulation, but the researchers could not determine causality or identify whether co-occurring severe maternal complications came before or after the cardiac arrest. Acute respiratory distress syndrome was the most common co-occurring diagnosis, and cardiac arrest rates were high among hospitalizations where a diagnosis of amniotic fluid embolism was noted. According to the authors, implementing clinical guidelines, ensuring that pregnant people receive risk-appropriate care, and addressing potential knowledge deficits in maternal cardiac arrest and cardiopulmonary resuscitation technique for pregnant people may improve maternal outcomes. Since the trials of antivirals for COVID-19 enrolled unvaccinated persons, there is uncertainty whether vaccinated patients benefit from the use of COVID-19 oral antivirals. The next article reports a retrospective cohort study that aimed to examine the real-world effectiveness of malnupiravir and nermotrelvir ritonavir in vaccinated persons with COVID-19 during the Omicron outbreak. The researchers studied electronic health databases in Hong Kong from February 26 to July 18, 2022, of 21,923 adults hospitalized with COVID-19 to evaluate the risk of both composite and separate outcomes of all-cause mortality, ICU admission, or use of ventilatory support. They conducted separate analyses for malnupiravir and nermotrelvir ritonavir recipients and considered patient factors including vaccination status. The risk of the composite outcome was significantly lower among recipients of either drug compared to non-recipients regardless of their COVID-19 vaccination status. On top of antiviral treatment, the data suggests additional benefits of previous vaccination in a dose-response manner. The researchers observed similar patterns in the subgroups of different vaccine platforms, age, sex, and comorbidity levels. No reliable head-to-head -head comparisons of the true treatment was feasible with these data.
Next is a case report of erythema gyratum repens, a very rare skin condition causing painful lesions that appear in a distinct circular pattern. The condition is usually associated with underlying malignancy in most cases, but in some cases can stem from an autoimmune disease, messenger RNA-based vaccines, or in rare cases, tuberculosis. The doctors caring for the patient described in this report had been initially falsely reassured by a negative TB screening test, though further TB testing should have been pursued because she was from a TB endemic country and had abnormal lung imaging. The authors say that clinicians learned to recognize this condition's annular or polycyclic ring-within-ring skin lesions because accurate diagnosis is critical for determining the appropriate treatment. When erythema gyratum repens is diagnosed, the next critical step is identifying and treating the underlying cause. Go to annals.org to read the case report and to see images of this condition. Cardiac amyloidosis is the topic of this month's In the Clinic Review. Amyloidosis is a pathologic and clinical condition resulting from the accumulation of misfolded proteins in tissues. Extracellular deposition of amyloid fibrils in the myocardium leads to cardiac amyloidosis, which is often overlooked as a cause of restrictive cardiomyopathy. Previously thought to be a disease with poor prognosis, recent advances in the diagnosis and treatment of cardiac amyloidosis have emphasized the importance of early recognition and change management of this important, often underrecognized clinical condition. This review provides an overview of cardiac amyloidosis and summarizes current screening, diagnosis, evaluation, and treatment options. Unfortunately, we seem to be living in an age when scary infections are lurking around every corner. Next is a study of national surveillance data that found that cases of Candida auris, a highly contagious fungal infection, rose drastically between 2019 and 2021. The researchers noted an increase in echinocandin-resistant cases and evidence of a transmission, which is particularly concerning because echinocandins are first-line therapy for invasive Candida infections, including C. auris. Since being initially reported in the United States in 2016, Candida auris has been observed to cause illness and death nationwide. The Centers for Disease Control and Prevention rated C. auris an urgent threat, the highest level of concern because it is often multidrug resistant, spreads easily in healthcare facilities, and can cause severe invasive infections with high mortality rates. Most transmission occurs in healthcare facilities, especially among residents of long-term care facilities or among persons with indwelling devices or mechanical ventilators. Researchers from the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention used national surveillance data on cases of C. aureus identified both clinically and through screening that were reported to state and local health departments to describe recent changes in the U.S. epidemiology of C. aureus between 2019 and 2021. They also examined data from CDC's Antimicrobial Resistance Laboratory Network. The data showed that the percentage increase in both clinically defined cases and screening-defined cases grew each year. The number of C. auris cases that were resistant to first-line treatment in 2021 was about three times that in each of the previous two years. According to the authors, the timing of this increase in C. auris spread and findings from public health investigations suggest it may have been exacerbated by pandemic-related strain on the healthcare and public health systems which included staff and equipment shortages, increased patient burden and disease severity, increased antimicrobial use, changes in patient movement patterns, and poor implementation of non-COVID-19 prevention measures. 
These findings emphasize that improved detection and infection control practices are urgently needed to prevent the spread of Candida auris. The Food and Drug Administration Risk Evaluation and Mitigation Strategy, often referred to as REMS, is a U.S. FDA-mandated drug safety program that is sometimes required to be implemented by drug manufacturers to ensure that prescribers, pharmacists, and patients are informed about certain drug safety risks, including dangerous prenatal exposure. In 2019, the FDA approved the use of combination product fentramine topiramate for long-term obesity management. Single-ingredient topiramate, approved for treatment of epilepsy in 1996 and also used to treat other conditions such as migraine, is now also sometimes used alone for weight loss. Topiramate's association with risk for birth defects is well-established, but REMS was not FDA-mandated when topiramate was approved in 1996. Because of the specific focus on weight loss for the new combination product representing many persons of childbearing age, fentramine topiramate was approved with the requirement of a REMS aimed at preventing prenatal exposure. Researchers from the University of Florida studied insurance claim data for 156,280 treatment episodes among women aged 12 to 55 to evaluate the rate of prenatal exposure, contraceptive use, and pregnancy testing among patients initiating fentramine topiramate compared to those who started topiramate alone or other medications used to treat obesity that are not associated with birth defects. The authors found that the use of fentramine topiramate was associated with half the risk for exposure during pregnancy compared to either of the control groups. They also found that only one in five patients used contraceptives before and during treatment overall, and only 1 in 20 patients had pregnancy tests before medication initiation. The authors note that younger patients use more contraceptives and pregnancy tests than their older counterparts, but the absolute risk for prenatal exposure was also higher among the older women. The authors note that the effectiveness of the REMS in reducing prenatal exposure is promising, but also emphasize the need for further clinical vigilance and risk mitigation, including topiramate products that do not fall under a REMS requirement. Patients hospitalized with COVID-19 have an increased incidence of thromboembolism, but the role of extended thromboprophylaxis after hospital discharge is unclear. The next article reports a randomized controlled trial that aimed to determine whether anticoagulation is superior to placebo in reducing death and thromboembolic complications among patients discharged after a COVID-19 hospitalization. The trial was conducted during 2021 to 2022 at 127 U.S. hospitals. The researchers enrolled adults hospitalized with COVID-19 for more than 48 hours who were ready for discharge, excluding those with a requirement for or a contraindication to anticoagulation. Patients were randomized to receive either apixaban 2.5 milligrams or placebo twice daily for 30 days. The primary outcome of interest was a 30-day composite of death or arterial or venous thromboembolism. The primary safety endpoint was bleeding. The Data Safety Monitoring Board terminated patient enrollment after randomization of 1,217 participants due to low primary endpoint rate and decline in COVID-19 hospitalizations. Incidence of the primary endpoint was 2.13% in the Pixban group and 2.31% in the placebo group. The relative risk was 0.92 with 95% confident intervals that were wide from 0.44 to 1.95. Major bleeding occurred in two patients who received apixaban and one who received placebo. 
The very low incidence of post-discharge death or thromboembolism in this cohort suggests no benefit of empiric extended thromboprophylaxis. However, due to early termination of the study, the trial was underpowered to definitively determine lack of benefit. A commentary accompanying the article discusses the challenge of reporting inconclusive trial results. With the release of ChatGPT, artificial intelligence has become a topic of constant discussion by people in every field, including health and science. In a new ideas and opinions commentary, authors from Amsterdam University Medical Center outline the possible benefits, problems, and future of medical research assisted or written by artificial intelligence software applications like ChatGPT. Annals of Internal Medicine recently began to require authors submitting manuscripts to attest whether or not they used artificial intelligence to develop any aspect of the submitted work, and if they did, to describe its use in both the cover letter and the manuscript. We also established that our policy is that chat GPT and other technologies do not qualify as authors and that authors are accountable for content developed with the aid of artificial intelligence, just as they are accountable for other aspects of the work they produce. A new research and reporting methods article discusses strategies to address heterogeneity of treatment effects as data generated from the care of patients, so-called real-world data, are used to inform clinical decisions for subpopulations of patients and perhaps even individual patients. There is also a new On Being a Doctor essay and new episodes of Annals Consult Guys and the Annals on Call podcast. All are available on annals.org. And the last new material I want to highlight is the latest Annals of Internal Medicine, American College of Physicians Virtual Forum. The topic of this one is current clinical challenges in the care of patients with overweight and obesity. Go to annals.org to view the full program, which occurred on March 8th. Dr. Christina Wee, Annals Senior Deputy Editor, moderated the discussion. Panelists were Dr. Anita Kirkoulis, Dr. Sharon Herring, and Dr. Melanie Jay. Panelists discussed common clinical scenarios and addressed a multitude of questions submitted by attendees. The program is a must-watch for physicians who care for patients with overweight and obesity. That brings us to the end of the March 21, 2023 Annals of Internal Medicine podcast. Thanks for listening to learn about the latest new material in Annals. I hope that I've piqued your interest and will go to annals.org for a closer look. Thanks to Beth Jenkinson, Andrew Langman, and Bernie Turner for their technical support. Brought to you by GSK. Learn about commercial coverage for Shingrix, Zoster vaccine recombinant adjuvanted, by visiting coverageshingrix.com.